Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. This week, it's not Grand Rounds, it's Journal Club with Artie Kavanaugh from UCSD. Hey, Artie. Hey, Jack. Glad, glad to be here. Yep. We're, wherever we are in the Ethernet, um, uh, you from San Diego, me from my office in Dallas, um, and, you know, three, four hundred of our best friends watching us, and, uh, uh, and they're going to join in the conversation. Folks, we're going to uh, get to Artie's journal article in a minute, um, and but I want to start off with a few um, items that we can discuss. But when we do get to Artie's presentation, uh, feel free to ask questions uh, while we may, and we're going to be talking about lupus and the use of steroids um, uh, going forward, and that should be the bulk of your questions. But if you want to ask us about tomorrow's weather in Wichita, we could take a stab at it. You know, no reason to do that. So for that, you're going to use the Q&A uh, button on the bottom, not the chat button. Don't raise your hand. I'm not paying attention to it, but we will get your questions and go through as many as we can in the last half hour. Artie, I want to start off with um, one of the reasons why we're here is, you know, life has changed. Education's become difficult. Um, you're at a major university with a major teaching program. How has education changed and how are you educating the fellows at UCSD? Well, it's a, it's a, certainly a difficult time, and I think, uh, as uh, Alan Matsumoto said uh, a couple of weeks ago on Room Now, it's it's something that's a skill set we're learning, and we've gone, of course, I think, as everybody has, to virtual grand rounds, which actually don't they work pretty good. It's it sure feels not as good as sitting there with people, but the grand rounds part of it seems good. I think the the clinics are are sort of. Uh, taking a bit of a hit because there's a little bit fewer patients and because uh, at the start we were really distant from each other and it's boy you sure it's it's hard to learn in that atmosphere we have like I think a lot of traditional teaching clinics do we have a big room and uh, the attendings are there and the fellows come in and we talk about patients and say hey what do you think about you know hey look at this x-ray uh, we're starting to get a little bit more back into that trying to social distance while being close enough to each other to get that sort of camaraderie, which I think is an important part of this apprenticeship that is rheumatology education. So uh, we're heading back toward there. Uh, we certainly the, encourage the fellows to take advantage of all the resources. The ACR put together a teaching program that has been very well received by the fellows. Uh, we still you know, talk about the, the newest journal articles and what's coming out. Uh, so I think it's, it's a, a scramble. Uh, but I think uh, we're, I think we're doing it, and I think everybody else is probably doing the same. So I know you to be a voracious reader and consumer of data and information, and you do all that while you're in the high skies, tra traveling to wherever your next lecture is or meeting. And that's where you get a lot of work done. Now, since you're working from home, has it changed how you you're, how you read and cover the journals? Well, in a way, though, in a way, of course, that is. I mean, it's 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 a different universe. But the good part about uh, being on a plane was that you're you're alone. You had time where people weren't really bugging you. And now, with so much time, um, there are large parts of the day where uh, now you know whether it's reading journals or cleaning out the file cabinet or doing other things, uh, there is a lot of time. And so I think that has replaced it. And I keep up with the journals uh, as good as I did when I was taking them on a plane. It was really the going to work part. That was what got into, into interfere with the journal reading. So we have a few reports this week, including today, two new reports about IL-6 um, and that they might work in patients with 
not necessarily cytokine storm, but in severe patients with uh, the COVID-19 infection. Um, these are in the JAMA Open Network uh, publication. And then we had an early report from the VA Center um, uh, about hydroxychloroquine um, and another report about chloroquine having a higher death rate. And all of these are basically early reports, almost preprints or, or really even news headlines. The, the one of the I wrote about today was from a French newspaper. Um, and the author said, we have an obligation to put this stuff out there. It's ethical for us to do this. We're going to get it published, but we're putting our data out now. 129 patients, you know, treated with tocilizumab. It looked like they did better if they were on tocilizumab than not on tocilizumab. But the idea is, one. Of, I'm going to bring up a quote from one of the editorialists who wrote um, amidst the torrent of, of data that's coming out right now, seems like the half-life of information is making this really, really uh, difficult. So, you know, is it right to be reporting on these, you know, studies that are almost fully done? A lot of them actually aren't. They're interim analyses. Uh, and they're, we're getting almost like a preprint. Is that right to put it out there? Or is it, or should we be holding back and saying, I'm not believing it until I see the real study? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I read on Room Now, I read those reports, including the French one, and exactly as you said, they framed it in an ethical standpoint and said, it's too important. We can't not have this data out. But uh, before instead, it, it has a danger of uh, causing more harm than good. So I think things are being rushed a little bit. And you see, uh, chloroquine was the savior. Now it's the devil. Then it's the savior, maybe for a couple of people. And of course, the same with the IL-6 inhibitors. It makes a lot of sense that they could work. But I think premature data I don't know that that necessarily helps us. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's, it's like the days when you really can't get the results of how to treat inflammatory myositis. The best you can do is some kind of either claims data analysis or database analysis. And, you know, they're not proof of principle. They're hypothesis generating and help you to lean. But in, unless you have nothing else to lean on, it's the best you can do. And that right now is the best we can do. Let's get to the, today's journal article. All right, go ahead. But, you know, things come and go in medicine. Remember, magnesium sulfate uh, as a therapy. Uh, you get old like us, prednisone. You know, it's either saving sepsis or killing sepsis. And then it's saving it. And then things come back and forth, hormone replacement. So uh, these, these high publicity anecdotes, which have not been methodologically shaken out, they, they are not the strongest data. And that's, what, that's the kind of data that gets overturned. Okay. Yeah, we still are heavily reliant on real journal articles from real journals um, to give us our best guidance. Speaking of journal articles, this is our article for today. Um, it's ARD. The title of it is Withdrawal of Low-Dose Prednisone in SLE Patients with a Clinically Quiescent Disease for More Than One Year, Randomized Clinical Trial by Mathian Alexis et al., I'm going to um, turn the screen over to Artie. Um, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to be controlling the screen, and Artie's going to be narrating um, the slides as we go forward. So let's do that. Um, let me see. Which one do I want to show? i got too many open slides. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, not that one. Not, oh, this is the one we want. There we go. All right. Well, here we go, I, folks. As you're, uh, as you're getting the slides ready, Jack, let me take a uh, a little commercial uh, uh, tangent here, which I wouldn't normally do, but I swear, hand to God, 
15 minutes ago is cleaning out some old uh, files and I don't, it's a mixture, you know, stuff that you, you've saved over the years, receipts, uh, pay stubs, uh, certifications, evaluations from 2006. And in that file, and I said, you know, if it wasn't 15 minutes before the show, I, I wouldn't have probably said anything about it, but I found this. <laughs> Ask the experts. And look at that handsome young purple lad there. This is, this is John J. Cush right there back in the day. Um, so I'm saving this bad boy. Um, but uh, uh, it's amazing the stuff that you have in your files that you haven't looked at for a number of years. You so, need a bonfire fire cell. <laughs> so speaking of old things, prednisone. Um, prednisone, it's, it's uh, the, the, the therapy that's defined rheumatology for more than half a century now. And we're still arguing about what the most proper place of it is. And uh, I, this is an abstract that was presented at ULAR, and now it's just been published in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease. Uh, the withdrawal of low-dose prednisone in lupus patients. And, uh, you know, I think prednisone, I always say it's, it's the, the, the secret of rheumatologists if you ask a rheumatologist how many of your lupus patients take prednisone chronically, uh, we know the answer is not supposed to be a lot. We know that it's, we're supposed to get people off prednisone. That's what we're supposed to do. But the, uh, if you look at our charts, it was, it's probably 60, 70% of people. I remember Jack, when I, Jack and I were in the, the lupus clinic in UT Southwestern in Dallas, and someone asked, uh, well, what do you do with your prednisone? They said, oh, we taper it. This is how we taper it. Boom. And they're off. Everybody's off by a year. And then you look in the charts and there's a lot of people who are still on it. So I think, you know, many of us would say, well, what, what is the, what happens, especially when people are doing very well, because you have the, the potential risk of the disease acting up versus the toxicity of the steroids. In registries, there's 60, 70, 80 plus percent of patients who are on low-dose prednisone. And to me, that rings true in that you, you have Mrs. Jones come and you want to get off the prednisone, but just not right now because she's got a travel coming, she's going on a cruise, she's, something else is going up. So we always do it slower than we should. Uh, our societies tell us we should be getting people off prednisone. The most recent EULA recommendations in 2019 said withdrawal when possible. Um, so this study addresses that in, a, I think, a, a very nice way. It's the cortical loop study. It's single center, um, 124 patients with clinically quiescent uh, lupus for 12 months or more who were on five milligrams a day. So what is clinically quiescent? Well, clinically quiescent is pretty low disease. So the sled I2K less than or equal to four, um, the bilag, uh, which covers pretty much every aspect of lupus that could exist, had to be a D or an E in all systems, except some non-significant uh, uh, hematologic manifestations, like someone who's always lymphopenic, they could be lymphopenic. The physician global assessment had to be zero, very important. They were on prednisone, five milligrams a day. They were allowed to be on other medicines, hydroxychloroquine, uh, azathioprine, mycophenolate, but that had to be stable for a year or more. Now, it is an open-label study, and they were randomized to either continue the prednisone or to withdraw. Uh, a nice aspect of the study, especially because the people have been on this prednisone a while, is that uh, they gave people hydrocortisone to, for the first month, 20 milligrams a day, 
just to make sure that adrenal insufficiency was being flagged as a lupus flare. And they tested a few people and found that that was not the case. Primary endpoint to the study was any flare, according to the revised Selena Sleedi flare index, over 52 weeks. And it was powered to be a superiority study. And with that, they ended up saying they needed about uh, just over 120 patients, which is what they, what they uh, achieved. So the patients were evaluated um, every three months and looking specifically for signs and symptoms consistent with the flare. Uh, treatment could be changed only for occurrence of adverse events related to the medicine or for a flare. And they didn't consider isolated serologic changes of flare. So changes in the DSDNA, changes in the complements were not considered a flare. So who did they put in the study? 63 people ended up in the open label prednisone withdrawal group. 61 patients maintained prednisone. Um, prednisone. Uh, the table one of the paper, uh, really very comparable. They uh, achieved, it, it, randomization worked. They had very comparable characteristics. The age mean was 42, 90% women, long disease, long uh, duration of lupus, so more than 12 years. They had been quiescent, importantly, for a long time. So 62 months was the mean duration of clinical quiescence. And the mean Selena Sleedi was 1.5. That's, that's virtually as anybody who's used the, the, the Sleedi form knows, that one, that, that basically gets you zero or one thing at all. So that's, there's not a lot. Uh, what did they have? They had, a lot of the patients had arthritis, 80%. 60% had dermatologic complications of lupus. Lupus nephritis in 37%, serositis in 25%, and then smaller numbers with the cerebritis, et cetera. Uh, low complements, 28% at uh, baseline, high double-stranded DNA, 47%, and both in 16% of, uh, of patients. That's an interesting subset of people who, as the Canadians call them, would be clinically uh, quiescent, serologically active lupus. Uh, treatment, 92% on hydroxychloroquine, as you would have guessed. In this group of patients with a lot of skin and joint stuff, uh, mycophenolate, 13%, azathioprine, an additional uh, 3%, and methotrexate, 10%. The steroids have been used for uh, 141 months, so almost 12 years. What are the data? What's the data? What did we learn from this? Well, the people who withdrew the prednisone flared more. 20% of them, 17 out of 63 flared, compared to 7%, or 4 out of 61, which was highly statistically significant. Now, they looked at, of course, at some secondary endpoints. Mild or moderate flare was 12 patients versus 3, which was also statistically significant. And severe flare, 5 patients versus 1, small numbers and not statistically significant. They looked at other definitions of flare, using the bilag, for example and found the very similar results. Uh, changes in serology were not very predictive of who would flare. They didn't find any difference in the damage index. The flares were very often what the person had had before. The patients had uh, arthritis, many of them, so arthritis was the most common, skin disease, the second most common, and glomerulonephritis were three patients who of those who flare. So, um, there were no predictors of who would flare. As I said, serologically, it didn't predict. Uh, duration of steroids didn't predict. Concomitant medicines didn't predict, other than the withdrawal of prednisone. Now, the, and the key question in everybody's mind, well, what about toxicity? 
is it isn't it better to get off right in the zone for considerations of of adverse events well um they didn't have a lot of adverse events which again sort of makes sense when you think about the long duration of treatment and the low dose this is five milligrams that we're looking at um they looked at the glucocorticoid toxicity index and changes in that index worsening in the index was not different between the two groups so the um conclusions that they had is um, I think hard to argue with, and that is that uh, withdrawal of low-dose prednisone in people who were pretty much rock-stable for a long time, five milligrams of prednisone, if you withdraw it, they are much more likely to flare, and some of them mild to moderate, and some of them severe. Now, on the, um, ooh, and that, you, you know what, I've been having, I, I haven't, I haven't been adjusting the slide, so let's see, let me, uh, let me back up uh, rookie mistake here. Let's go to the second slide, which has the things I've just been reading off and talking about. Um, this is the setup and says, why should you do this? Next slide shows the, um, go to the next slide the, that has the baseline characteristics, which I read all of these, very comparable, uh, concomitant therapies. Then go to the next slide. And this is the data slide that shows all the information. The next slide. Um, and here's the survival plots really showing the, the stark difference between those who, and this is the main outcome, primary outcome, this is probability of flare. Uh, patients who uh, withdrew, more, many more of them flared compared to those who did not withdraw. So the overall conclusion is that withdrawing low-dose prednisone in people who have been on it for a very long time, very stable at that dose, can be associated with the flare. So, um, an interesting uh, aside also on the next slide, um, as this journal club was posted, Cindy Arano uh, reached out and said, this is something I did years ago. And she sent me an article that she had written, uh, published in the Scandinavian Journal of Rheumatology, which um, didn't, wasn't picked up, should have been referenced by these authors, but was not. Uh, this was a, a review they did back in the day, uh, retrospective chart review, uh, 22 lupus patients, who had uh, a flare, or two of them had uh, two patients had more than one flare, and they were in prolonged uh, inactive disease, which was actually defined by use of low dose prednisone. And they were looking at them for see who flared, and again, flaring was defined by needing 20 milligrams or more of prednisone for three uh, consecutive months. So they had um, of the, these patients, um, six had major flares, 18 did not. Um, again, these are people with uh, active lupus that was treated. Now they're in prolonged inactive disease on very low doses of prednisone, presumably doing very, very well. Uh, what they found is that fewer flares were associated with uh, people who had been on a higher dose for a longer period of time of steroids when they were active. Uh, concomitant azathioprine and hydroxychloroquine. Concomitant azathioprine, 33%. Uh, use by those who didn't flare, 17% by those who did. Plaquenil as well, 44% uh, for people who didn't flare, 17% who did. And interestingly, five of the six people who were flaring had tapered off prednisone completely. Remember, they were on zero to five. Most of them were on five. Um, so when those who tapered to zero had a much higher incidence, it looks like, of having a flare. So um, it, it it looks as if these data really go along with the data that we just said from the Annals of Rheumatic Disease uh, paper. And that is that the, you may want to keep some people on long-term prednisone. In this, 
they didn't find a dramatic difference in the tapering from the low dose steroids. So um, a little bit more in those who stayed on prednisone in, in terms of steroid related adverse events. So I, I really love that uh, Dr. Aaron now forwarded this and um, it, it, it brought a, a warm fuzzy to my heart because um, I've been there when you've done a paper and nobody knows about it. Uh, and there was a study that we did at UT Southwestern and Jack remembers this one very well. Uh, this was the HELP trial, the hydroxychloroquine effects on lipoprotein profile. So uh, we did this study, we um, set it up, did it all internally, got drug and matching placebo from the manufacturer uh, and got an endocrinologist, uh, Margo Denke, got a nutritionist, uh, got a statistician, uh, all really kind of putting their time in a voluntary basis. It was an investigator initiated study with no money behind it. And we did show that in a, a, a double blind study that uh, in placebo controlled study that hydroxychloroquine had a significant benefit on decreasing lipoprotein levels. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Rheumatology um, in 1997. And um, for any of you who want, and actually some investigators from uh, Quebec reached out to me last year and they found the paper. And that just, that just brought a tear to my eye. Um, and they, they asked me um, if I could send them the data. And I said, I would love to send you the data. Um, let me find the file for that. And I did find the file for that on something that was like this. Um, and for those of you who young youngins that are listening, uh, public service announcement, you know, when you save something on a computer and you see something that kind of looks like this and you wonder what, what the hell is that thing? Well, this is, uh, uh, we call them floppy disks. They're not floppy. They're pretty hard. But the ones before this were floppy, uh, the five and a quarter inch. These are three and a half inch. This is a this holds one point four four megabytes. So that's enough for a couple of uh, files and uh, maybe a, a, a very, very poor quality picture these days. Uh, but anyway, I, I tried to send to the files. Trouble is they were in a program called Lotus One Two Three, which only Jack knows because Jack was the Lotus One Two Three Maven. Um, but anyway, sometimes you do things in the, and uh, it's really nice to get to, to to hear back that somebody paid attention to it years from now. So, uh, bottom line on the next slide, um, if you will, uh, is that uh, here's the if we go to there the withdrawal of low dose prednisone is in patients who are doing really well on prednisone for a really long time, very low disease activity. You stop that five milligrams of prednisone, they're going to flare. Um, and how do you, what do you do with that data? And I'm going to ask Jack this. Uh, you could look at it and say, well, 73% of the patients didn't flare. So why don't you just stop the prednisone and, and see what it does? And other people may say, well, why, why do that? Why not just keep that low dose prednisone? Because the toxicity didn't seem to be a real uh, tremendous burden, although it wasn't really assessed over a long period of time. So uh, in, I think very well done beautifully done study. I really like this. I think it raises questions. Uh, and I'd love to hear discussion. Uh, Jack, what do you think of it uh, on this topic? Well, um, I, I think we're getting a lot of questions on this. I want to remind everyone next week, Len Calabrese is going to do our grand rounds. And he's going to talk about IL-6 and health and disease. Um, but this week, it's still just um, uh, you and I. And uh, I, I like the paper too, because it fed um, a belief that I developed over many years of working with you and Peter Lipsky in the Lupus Clinic and 
you know, we had an incredible lupus clinic of lots and lots of patients at Parkland. And, um, and I mean, I don't know that I would have done as well managing lupus if I wasn't allowed to keep people on, on two and a half or five or even seven milligrams of prednisone because it was the great equalizer. Otherwise, everybody's in the hospital or we're using more consultants or whatnot. So this boils down to an old mentality, mind mentality of keep them on the prednisone supported by this data. I love this data. But if we had Michelle Petrie here, she'd be ranting about we don't need to use prednisone these days to manage our patients with lupus and that the goal should be steroid-free management. Yes, steroid plays a very important role, but can we really get around to steroid-free management of lupus? What do you think? Well, I think it's, it's interesting you mentioned Michelle because one of her other passions is hydroxychloroquine is very safe, but as which I, I believe as well. But um, these days, especially with the change in uh, how the ophthalmologists consider this, I find myself hydro with getting hydroxychloroquine taken off the plate for some patients because they go to the ophthalmologist and all they hear is blah, 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 blind, blah, 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 and they won't take the medicine anymore. And that's kind of this population. Uh, 15 years of lupus uh, doing well with active manifestations in the past that would respond to hydroxychloroquine. So we have, you know, how many other options do we have? We do have bulimumab available to us now. Um, we have other options, but you know, you're going to give somebody who is this kind of a patient, microphenolate, some of them are on it. Um, you give them methotrexate. Well, that's, you know, they, so I, I think this, this makes me reevaluate, you know, writing at the bottom of every note, taper off friends. So next time. Which, <laughs> yeah. The question is what these results have looked the same if this was a five-year study. So, you know, we learned in RA that, you know, flares have a cumulative effect, right? And we tend to think of as flares and flare management as sort of a knee-jerk response. If this, then that, give more steroids, get them over the hump and move on. But there's a cumulative effect to flares in RA, especially when you're relying on one agent only, which is steroids. I don't know that we, we know that, that um, we can afford to take them off and then manage a whole lot more flares. Yeah. And I think that I think I agree with you hundred percent. I think the same issue with lupus, um, you take them off five and they flare. Well, maybe they're miserable. And then what do you do? Then you put them back. Generally, I think a lot of us would go higher and give them 15 or 20 or some people might even say higher to get that capture, get them doing well again, get them back to five. So in the meantime, for some people, you're using more steroid than they, you would have likely if they had just stayed on the five. So, you know, the, the uh, graph that you showed on the primary endpoint uh, in that last slide showed that the ones who stayed on steroids still had a flare rate, although it occurred at a lower level and it occurred late, right? Yeah. Suggesting that over time, there's an inherent propensity for lupus patients to flare. We know that. But yeah. that taking them off the steroids just sort of accelerates that and magnifies it a little bit to the point where it looks bad on paper and it could be clinically bothersome to manage. And the question is, what do patients want? Yeah. No, and as you alluded to, uh, I think you could say the same in rheumatoid arthritis. We know the studies um, with the, uh, the tocilizumab, where if you looked at the people who were removed from the steroids, very similar data in that a lot of people did well and did fine off the steroids, but the, uh, some of those flared more so than the ones who stayed on the prednisone. And it's the same thing. What is it going to take to capture them to get them back under control? All right, so let's go to some questions here. Um, 
Um, let's do some questions on this before we get to um, uh, life and Corona. But um, do you believe in the bilag scoring system? Um, does it real have? Does it have any utility for you? I mean, you do lupus trials and you understand it. The rest of us, it's like a bunch of nonsense that I don't need to know about. Um, but do you believe in it or, or other outcome measures in lupus? Yeah, I I uh, uh, am involved in a lot of lupus studies. Uh, mainly because my colleague, Dr. Ken Clooney, is a lupus, uh, renowned lupus expert. And so he's often the PI of the study, which means that uh, I will sometimes have to do the bilag, and it's awful. Um, it's absolutely horrible. Um, wait, does this go internationally? Uh, just the, above, uh, above into Canada only, um, okay. not across the Atlantic. <laughs> no, I'm not telling, I'm not saying anything anybody hasn't already said. I mean, it's a uh, it's the Rube Goldberg of, of uh, assessments. And it, it has an inherent complexity that pretty much guarantees that you're gonna have logical errors. You, you, you have to, you can't go from, you, you can't go from very severe to gone. You have to go to improving first. So uh, when you, and then in a research study, it's awful because you're really looking at this a year later and saying, well, Mrs. Jones, she went from this to this and she didn't go into the in-between. And it is very comprehensive. I think it was a great idea to be able to really look at every potential facet of lupus and look at it in a way that the clinicians, it, it is meaningful. Are you changing therapy based on this manifestation? But it's completely unwieldy, completely, um, I, I think, unpractical, never ever used in, in the clinic. And you know the, the when are they going to move as rheumatoid did to getting something that you really can do in the clinic so that you're not just doing something for looking at a journal article and looking at an outcome and then saying well I'm not doing that and so and RA has kind of gone the other way and I think lupus has got to go that way and I know a lot of people including uh, Ken and Cindy Arano and a lot of people have. Uh, are working on trying to get something and it's difficult because it's a heterogeneous disease and uh, in that way RA is a lot easier but no I don't think the biolag has any use in the clinic. Okay so a number uh, of questions on um, how fast were the steroids tapered and uh, Tony Russell says surely people who've been on steroids for 12 years you need to tail down very slowly and not just stop them so uh, in this study how are they tapered and what do you really do? Well, they were stopped um, from that, and they did think about uh, adrenal insufficiency. Um, they went and, from five to zero. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I got the I got the article I got the article here. Yeah, they tapered them off, um, and they did give them uh, twenty milligrams of hydrocortisone for the first month, and they did ACTH simulation tests on several people, like a handful of people for whom it was a question, is this a lupus flare versus adrenal insufficiency? And it was not adrenal insufficiency. So, um, you know, and the, 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 to find data on the prednisone withdrawal, you really have to go back a long ways in rheumatological history. Um, I remember looking this up many years ago as an allergy fellow. And there's the, it's, it's interesting because of course, the, the history of steroids, people use more and more and more people are feeling fantastic. Then they went for orthopedic surgery to replace the crippled joint that was now holding them back because of the damage, not because of the inflammation. They went in the hospital. No one knew about steroid withdrawal and boom, that's when they found out about it. But um, I remember an article from the late seventies that 
actually looked at acutely stopping people on much higher doses. And most people do not go into adrenal insufficiency. Um, it's become standard practice for anesthesiologists to use replacement for anybody who's on certainly higher doses of prednisone. It's interesting though, the practice isn't necessarily, I, I think somebody on three or four, I've seen the anesthesiologist say, no, they don't need to do that. So I, I think we worry about the adrenal insufficiency always, but um, I don't think it happens nearly as much so, uh, as we worry about. So this study was an open label trial, um, meaning that those who were randomized to continue were, okay, we're continuing, it's, it's status quo, but those who are randomized to withdrawal, um, do you think that could have biased this? That they might've thought of themselves either as pioneers or being persecuted, um, and could that have changed the outcomes here? Sure, and it, it, it's always something you think about in an open study. I'm not gonna flare because I'm still on the prednisone, um, whereas the other people, uh, you know, you're taking away a medicine that I've been on for a while. Um, and, but the, the uh, I think that's always an issue in rheumatologic diseases. Um, the most common flares were the same things that they had had before, the arthritis and the dermatologic manifestations. But some people had a flare of glomerular nephritis uh, it'd be better, and it would have been would, would have made that the uh, a you know perfect study if it was blinded with a um, prednisone placebo. Um, Andy Weinberger asks, uh, what about the abrupt cessation? What do, would the study maybe have looked different if we had done a gradual taper as we would normally do, or would it have just delayed the inevitable? Um, impossible to know. That's a great point. Um, what about if you had gotten to, you know, do they need five? Um, and it's interesting because I always look back, uh, um, you know, to the, to the uh, work of Gus Escalante in uh, um, UT San Antonio, who's uh, done a ton of work on the toxicities of prednisone, looking particularly at the cardiovascular, and to say, what is a, what is a safe dose? And I'm not sure exactly where I get it from, but what I tell patients is three or four. That you get down to three, I don't think there are side effects of the prednisone. So if you want to stay at three forever, God bless. Especially if you're 70 years old and you have other issues going on. Um, so what if they had done? I mean, that's a, you know, if you if you if you had had gone, um, you know, if you gone slowly, what if some of the people went to two and a half instead of going to zero? Um, would two and a half have been in between or would have had the same staying power as the, the five milligrams did? Um, I don't, you know, I don't think we know this. Those are interesting questions. I personally, I like to get people be below five. Um, I, I'm happier at four than at five, although, um, I have trouble and I can't support that with a lot of good data. That's for sure. So again, this isn't, this is sort of mind bending, nerve wracking, puts my brain in a pretzel. Uh, what's worse, the chronic toxicity of five milligrams of prednisone, which might be something, who knows, maybe in bad people would be something, and maybe in good people it wouldn't be so much, versus the, 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 the consequences of flares being off. And then in the background, you have, you know, mavens like Michelle telling us that we really need to manage our lupus patients more aggressively uh, and not rely on more on steroids. This is, again, the um, it's, a, it's a tough one for the rheumatologists, and I think what I hope comes out of this is that you, everyone rethinks their strategy because being comfortable where you are may not be the right thing for the patient. Yeah, and, and they, you say, well, these patients, they should have watched them longer. 
to see if there was less avascular necrosis in the, the people who discontinued. Um, and that's, I find myself telling patients that, that prednisone is a, a sneaky drug. Uh, you can be on it for a while and pop up with a side effect. Unlike most people are going to have a side effect for a medicine that they have it really early on in the course. But prednisone does things that can sneak up on you. Um, shingles, I didn't see reported specifically for this, but low doses of prednisone are always pop up as a risk for that. Uh, so if they had followed them longer term, would they have found a difference for some of these uh, side effects that, uh, you know, besides the bothersome ones about the weight gain and the Cushing White appearance and stuff? So Art Weinstein points out 73% of patients did not flare after withdrawal. So isn't the issue going to be here that we need to know who those people are and, and who the people who do flare are? So is there, a, you think there's a futuristic way of figuring that out? Is it going to be the proverbial biomarker, uh, which I, I'm tired of people talking about it and, not, and, not, not, and it not showing up uh, like I need it? But, um, I mean, what do you think? Can we ever predict? Who, uh, who, or is this just a taste test? You got to do it and find it. It'd be, I think for right now, it's, it's uh, you know, you have to do it and see if there is a flare. It'd be awesome. It'd be awesome if there was a test to do it. But I, I think this discussion highlights one of the uh, things about biomarkers is they have to be really strong and they have to apply to most of the population that you're interested in. Otherwise, you don't care. So um, talk with uh, Jeff Curtis, and we looked at these in more in RA patients, but uh, it has to apply to 85 plus percent of the, the population that you're looking at. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. It's, if it's 60-40, that's not worth that. That test isn't going to help you. You're just as good just, just um, trying it and see if it works. Yeah. Do you think that um, patients on certain regimens like Ben Lista or you know, uh, mycophenolate with hydroxychloroquine that are more apt to successfully withdraw, or is it the same story? You just have to try. Well, in this group, they were, they were well balanced, so well balanced that they couldn't dissect out that effect. In Cindy's old paper, which um, there was, a, they, they looked at it in a different way. They did find infective concomitant medications. And those people on the azathioprine or the Plaquenil flared less than um, as did those who got treated more aggressively when their disease was active. So this study, um, because it was randomized, you didn't have that effect because the groups evenly matched for exposure to things. So that is, that's, you know, that's an important question. I think all of us would feel much better tapering the prednisone if they were to on something else and able to stay on something else that was helping control their lupus. Yeah. Do you think there's any role, Tanya Doan asks, is there any role for using hydro, hydrocortisone with prednisone when you want to stop like this to cover adrenal insufficiency? Or is this just a, a facet of a clinical trial that has no clinical applicability? I, I like it um, just as they said to, to um, try to dissect out, is this a flare? And I think that's what we do. We tell our patients, don't we? when we're tapering prednisone, like, you know, be be cognizant that you're, if you're tapering prednisone and you feel like your get up and go is gone, that could be the steroid. So maybe hang in there and, and see. And if after a week or so you feel fine, then uh, continue the taper. As, whereas if you have a new rash, that's not a, a adrenal insufficiency. That's the lupus acting up because you had the rash before and it was treated. Now it's coming back. Uh, so I warn the patients, I don't treat 
with the, the cortisone. Um, and the, I don't have a great reason not to accept that. I think that the adrenal insufficiency, it's horrible when it does happen, but it's really infrequent, even on people who are chronically on much higher doses. So to get back your giddy up, um, what dose of hydroxy of uh, hydrocortisone was used here for the first month? 20. 20. 20 okay, interesting. Um, someone's asking, actually, Martina uh, Ziegenbein asked, what do you and I do um, with our low-dose prednisone long-term? I'll, I'll start out, you know, so uh, low-dose prednisone long-term, we're talking about lupus patients here specifically. Um, I have always tended to rely on low-dose prednisone. So my patients have serious disease, not a little bit of aches and pain and mild skin stuff, but people who have multi-organ disease for which I'm going beyond hydroxychloroquine, um, I usually would strive to keep them, get them down to five or 2.5 a day and never change it. This paper sort of supports that, but I'm now swayed by some of the other evidence that says that maybe I should try to get them. So I think that the idea, the protocol that here where people were in remission for six months or in this case, 12 months um, with a, a low disease activity state, I think that they're asking you, they're inviting you to make a change. And I think it, I'm going to go back to my fellowship days of thinking like I should get them off of steroids if I can. Yeah, I, I think that I would say still, I mean, how can you, uh, how can you put in a chart? I'm just going to keep the prednisone forever. Um, you, you were always thinking we're going to taper it. Um, I probably, in people in, in a population such as this, I'd probably chicken out and go to four and, and then go to three and then go to two, thinking that uh, for you know, Mrs. Smith, she'll go to zero and do fine. But Mrs. Jones, uh, you know, she flares if she can't get below three. And some, for some reason, that makes me happier to be at three than at five. You know, I'm, I'm actually much younger than I look. I have my, my hair colored this way. But um, <laughs> Richard Jones at UAB says Graciela Alarcon would not be ranting. She'd be congratulating us because she's often said during his fellowship and after that it's wrong to remove steroids from people with severe lupus. Um, and a lot of people in the old school, Ted Pincus was one of them. I know that I've been one of them. Morris Ziff taught me. Uh, and, and I think that our, our whole clan was this way. Is this um, an artifact of aging um, and that we need a newer, <laughs> fresher approach here um, to better manage lupus going forward? I think one of the differences for um, older folks and the younger folks, and I, I'll admit it readily, younger folks are way better about things like uh, glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. They're all over that. And if that's in the back of your mind, then the lowest the, the dose you can get to, the better. Um, I think one of the things that's been, uh, I think, not shouldn't be surprising. I don't think it was surprising, but uh, all the discussion of zoster, particularly around the jackanibs, and yet when you look at it, it's 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 all the prednisone is always a a, a, a confounder in that. Um, you look at uh, GI perforations, file six inhibitors, prednisone is always in there with that. So. I think it's still, I, I think some people can't get off it. And certainly if they have other, no other alternatives. Um, but I, I still probably, you know, as, as Art just said, you know, 73% of the people could taper. So, um, you know, you have glass three quarters empty or three quarters full or a quarter empty or a quarter full. Um, Cindy Weaver asks about, do we check uh, hydroxychloroquine levels in your lupus patients? Um, 
I haven't. I know Michelle has published a lot on that, and there are very good correlations with levels and outcomes. Um, but I think it's really uh, it's it's kind of a sneaky way of uh, checking for compliance, isn't it? I don't think there's there's not uh, large genetic variations in how people metabolize. Not like azathioprine, for example. So. I know. I always feel bad. I, I haven't really, I, I don't know that I've done it um, with uh, hydroxychloroquine because it's sort of a sneaky way to say, aha, I know you're not taking it. Yeah. And I mean, the numbers on, uh, on lupus non-compliance by hydroxychloroquine are, are astounding. I mean, as much as 80% are non-compliant in some studies and as little as 40% in most studies are non-compliant. And, um, and yeah, you'd be showing that. Um, that's not who we're talking about in this particular study because people were, we don't know about their compliance. We do know that they were in a very good state for over a year and compliance wasn't really the question. In fact, they were doing so well, they, they could stop the steroids and you might've made a different study to start, actually stop the hydroxychloroquine. Well, that, that's another, that's a, a fascinating point, Jack, that you could raise about this study. I think all of us have the sense and I think there is some data to support it in some studies in rheumatoid arthritis when people get in the study, they behave better. And maybe there's better compliance with the 92% of people who are on hydroxychloroquine. And maybe if they were not compliant, then the disparity in flares would have been that much greater. You know, we don't, I, you don't know. And, and, and compliance, you know, other than those, those bottles that tell you when they open the pill or, uh, you know, some other fancy intrusive method, you're still just asking the patient if they're compliant. Well, non-compliant patients are actually as smart as the rest of us. So they find ways around that to, to fake the system. Um, so um, uh, one of our uh, viewers is asking about their, uh, our views on their concerns for low-dose steroids being an increased risk factor for infection. My view on that is five milligrams of prednisone probably does not increase your risk of, of infection unless you're someone who's sick. Someone who's really sick with comorbidities and, uh, and other reasons to you know, have an infectious risk, uncontrolled disease, five milligrams, five milligrams of prednisone adds to your risk, in my opinion. But if you're someone's doing really, really well, there's very little evidence that um, five milligrams or less is going to add, add to an infectious risk. What do you think? Yeah, I think the problem is we don't have a ton of data. And you will find data that says five milligrams and five milligrams is associated with an increased risk of infections. Um, but it's sort of, uh, we don't, we don't have a fine dosing data is three safer. Uh, 10 does seem to be worse. 15 um, definitely seems to be worse. So I don't know if five is clear of any risk of serious infections, but I think that the, the comorbidities, the concomitant medications are, are um, likely more important. So based on this trial, do, when you have someone and you say, oh, well, you know, you've been in, in remission now for 18 months and you're on five milligrams of prednisone, four milligrams, would you be stopping it abruptly or would you, what, what would you do? I'd probably still go to either four uh, for people who have a little OCD, which you have to have to take four one milligram pills every day um, as compared to like two and a half. Uh, I would still probably uh, taper. Um, I like the every other day taper as a, a sort of a gentle way. Um, and uh, that way, to me, you're sorting out the adrenal insufficiency issues and you're really seeing if there is uh, any benefit to them being on a low dose 
lower than than five. So I'd probably still I'd probably still not just stop abruptly. Okay. Um, let me ask you a question about practice. You know, I don't know about you guys, but uh, in our group at UT Southwestern, we're talking about the days of returning to normal and what is the clinic going to look like in June, July, or whenever that's going to be. Um, uh, so one speak, uh, one uh, uh, of our viewers asked, how will you be restructuring your clinic? For instance, how much telemedicine, how much face-to-face um, uh, -face visit once we get back to normal business? Uh, and what would you advise people as far as keeping patients and, sta and staff safe during that era? Well, I think telemedicine is um, definitely has a place. And I was a skeptic, uh, being a bit of a tech technophobe luddite as I am. But uh, I think it actually, uh, I think it has a nice place. And I think it's going to replace uh, a lot of my, my charts, um, where someone asks an essay question in five parts. And, um, you know, like, well, you don't want to be a bad person and not answer them, but it takes a very long time that's a televisit. That's a telephone visit or a, a video visit in the future. Um, we're also starting to open up again. And I think a big problem that probably all of us are going to have is that uh, outside of concierge medicine, waiting rooms are not designed for social distancing. Um, they, they stack them in like, uh, like the F train in, uh, in our clinic. Uh, and you no, know, you, you, you just, you, you certainly can't do that now. So their plan is to bring in new patients and still try to keep the video visits for the return patients for a little for a little while till we either till things blow over completely or we sort out a better way to do it so that people aren't uh sitting packed into a small room yeah we're we're making plans for um how patients are going to come in uh very few people in the waiting room you know and and how you run flow to accommodate that we're looking at a hybrid where we're gonna like, like just like you're saying some a certain amount of telemedicine, it's going to naturally fall to those who are good at it uh, and can make it profitable. Um, and those that really want the face-to-face -face and uh, want to bang on a keyboard and, and touch every joint, then, you know, it's going to work out in the future. But I believe it's going to be a mixed model as we go forward. Um, Andres Casano, uh, one of my partners here at Southwestern, asked, which do you think is worse, the cumulative damage occurred by steroid use or the organ damage incurred by either low activity or flares of activity? Which if you had to bet. Well, the, the problem is for some patients it's A and some patients it's B. And that's the, what you were pointing out, Jack, is we don't know. Um, you sure, if, some, if a patient had a flare of glomerular nephritis because you stopped a small dose of prednisone, hey, boy, you'd, you, you'd not be happy with that. But if someone got AVN and you think, geez, if I could stop, could have stopped the prednisone earlier, maybe they wouldn't have gotten it. But we don't know which is which patient. Uh, and both things can be possible and both things can be very serious. Um, Neil Stahl asks about QOD, prednisone dosing. Um, a blast from the past, a goodie but oldie. Um, no adrenal suppression. It works for me. Am I treating my patient or myself? He thinks the patient. What do you think? Well, it doesn't matter who you're treating. It matters who you're billing. So don't be billing yourself. That just, that, no, there's no win in that. Um, no, it makes sense. No, I, I love the every other day. And like I said, if, if I, if I have somebody on five, when I, I and I want to taper them, I'll ask them and say, look, we can go to four and then three and then two. And sometimes you get that look like, yeah. And so, okay, what about uh, five one day, two and a half the next five, two and a half, five, two and a half, and go to an every other day. I think there's, I love that regimen. 
Yeah. Um, another question of whether we think this data is generalizable to populations who are on more aggressive therapies, like everybody's on mycophenolate. Um, I, I don't think we learned anything from that this, uh, this particular study about um, who you can best do this in. No, they had the the they had did have some people on mycophenolate. Um, I'm gonna pull the numbers to see uh, what the percentage was like thirteen percent or something like that. Um, that were on that stayed on the the mycophenolate. Ten percent were on methotrexate. Three percent were on um, azathioprine. So there were a small minority of people who were on those. But yeah, if if someone was if one hundred percent of the patients were on mycophenolate, um, would you be more successful tapering? Um, our buddy David Bornstein in Washington says in 1993 wrote a paper, he provides a citation, American Journal of Medicine, uh, <laughs> volume 94, page 258, about the recovery of the HPA axis in RA patients on steroids. Every patient on five milligrams or less had an intact axis. Patients between five and a seven and a half were marginal. Everybody at 10 had a suppressed HPA axis. I got to see that paper. I see I now. Another old paper that would, you know, you got to get to get to bring them back from the archives. That's actually great. I want to see that. That's uh, that's very useful information. 1993. You're going to have to look on that floppy disk you were talking about earlier to find that one. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, FB3. That's meant for me. The question is worse. Which is worse, prednisone or the disease? Boy, isn't that like narrowing it down? Thank you, Danny, for asking that question. Um, I think in the end, uh, lupus is worse than prednisone, but boy, they're neck and neck, aren't they, when things are bad? Yeah, it's an individual patient. Could be either. Um, Vivian Sue, New Jersey asks, what do you do with younger patients below age 40 who have osteoporotic fractures on the spine to the long-term steroid use? Do you push as hard to get them off steroids? Could you do this kind of experiment, experiment in people like that? Well, I think it'd, be, it'd sure be hard in someone with osteoporosis to do anything but have as your goal to get them off the steroids. I think it's, uh, you know, the steroids are, are so bad for bone health in so many different ways from uh, um, calcium absorption through vitamin D processing through the effect on the osteoblast and the osteoclast. So uh, they're bad all the way. Are they this bad? Is, is there a dose of four or three that would be safe? We don't know, and not knowing that in that person, that's such a big risk. I think you really do have to push. So, Eve Scopolitis writes, um, and Bob Dylan wrote, "How many roads must a lupus patient walk down before it'll burn out?" Um, do you believe that lupus burns out? I think that I think that it does, and I think it's interesting. In this study, the mean age was 42, 90 percent were women. Um, I think as they go a little longer in the disease duration when they go through menopause, there's two things. One is the hormonal change in menopause. The other is that many of them will have had lupus now for 25, 30 years. And I think you can see, um, you certainly can see some activity still, but I think mostly if it does become quiescent. Yeah. Is, it, is it the hormonal change or the burnout uh, because they've had it for three decades? Uh, but I think, it, I think it does become less active over time. Is this right that the NNT on this is five to prevent a flare? Seems about right. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to, I'd have to get out my pencil and uh... yeah. slide rule pencil the whole deal. Um, <laughs> Philip Steo uh, says that Michelle uses an in-house whole blood hydroxychloroquine um, assay 
she believes that the commercial assays that are out there are not reliable. And, th and that's one of the problems. If I think we should be using more hydroxychloroquine monitoring uh, of blood levels. The question is, are they available and are they reliable and can you use the commercial ones? Well, I think Philip and Michelle are telling us that you've got to be really uh, careful about what you ask for here. Yeah. Um, John Goldman says, uh, uh, P is for prednisone or is it for poison? Um, okay. Um, you think the time release chronic, uh, 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 steroids are better in lupus or any other condition for that matter? Or is steroid steroid, the cheaper, the better? Yeah, I, I've, I've not been convinced that, uh, I mean, the, and at, this is older than, than you and I, which is saying something. Uh, the goal, you know, how much, how much time in rheumatology has been spent looking for a safer prednisone. And uh, the trouble is because the side effects are not actually super common. Um, the, the biggest ones that we worry about and they take long terms, uh, longer times to develop like the osteoporosis. We don't know that we have a safer one. It'd be great if we did, but I'm not convinced that you can really dis dissect or dissociate the good effects of prednisone from the, the same mechanisms resulting in the toxicity. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, um, Joe Flood asks, how much do we worry that even five milligrams of prednisone is at risk for post-op infection? Where is the risk benefit ratio? Is mild uh, flares worse than post-op uh, or um, kind of infections? Uh, it's tricky and gets back to the, you know, the individual patient. Yeah. Um, when uh, Nancy Lane is asking about denosumab and tapering glucocorticoids, um, I mean, uh, I think in patients who you have with glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis and they're on denosumab, you obviously are going to try uh, tapering, but um, I haven't seen data about the hazards of that. Have you? No. And uh, it'd be tough because there's, there's just in those few variables, there's there's dosing and other issues. So it'd be tricky to, to it'd be a big study to answer it. An interesting question for sure. Yeah. Um, let's see, I think we got maybe a few more questions here. Um, yeah, one question that's got nothing to do with um, this study, but has to do with uh, COVID infection. Do you have any comments about um, our patients on TNF inhibitors or on IL-17 inhibitors? Do you think that it's any different than being on hydroxychloroquine or actemra at this point? I don't know. I, I think we're all going to learn when we see the data, you know, especially from Italy where they've had a lot of cases and uh, a, a very similar approach to the treatment of patients as we have in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, you're not hearing a lot of uh, really bad outcomes, but um, I, I, I think we will learn. We have to see the data. I wouldn't be surprised that it's not a tremendous risk, but we have to see the data. Okay. All right. That comes to the close of the hour. I want to thank Artie Kavanaugh for joining us and presenting this great paper. Artie, thanks a million. Um, we're going to get you again to Journal Club in another few months. Um, tune in next week, everyone. Uh, we're going to have a, a great session with Len Calabrese talking about IL-6 and health and disease coming to you from the Cleveland Clinic. So until next week, folks, take care. Okay.